Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. Today, we are airing the final episode in our series we're calling Climate Hits Home, in which we describe how changing climate conditions are affecting communities across the United States and how those communities are addressing it. In this episode, we're going to have a discussion of flooding with a geographic focus on Appalachia. My guest is Nicholas Zeng. Nico is Associate Professor of Forest Hydrology at West Virginia University, where he also directs the West Virginia Mountain Hydrology Lab. The lab focuses on all aspects of water resources with an emphasis on the impacts and implications of environmental change and climate change on freshwater security, access, and environmental and social justice in mountain regions. I connected with Nico last summer after the devastating floods in eastern Kentucky, which killed 45 people. He was quoted heavily in the press after that event, and I've learned since then that he has extensive scientific expertise on the nature of flooding in the complex landscape of Appalachia, as well as experience working with communities on how to build resilience. So we're going to talk with Nico about the growing number of extreme precipitation events in West Virginia and other parts of Appalachia, how communities are being affected, and what are some of the state and local approaches to dealing with the problem. Stay with us. Hello, Nico. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. So before we dive in, I want to... Uh, start by learning a little bit more about you and how you came to do what you do. We always begin our podcast with this kind of get to know you question. So can you just share with our audience a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to work on flooding and and other water resources issues in Appalachia? Sure. Um, Well, I've always been drawn to water and rivers have been pulling me towards them all my life. Um, I really started seeing the world through a lens of water um, when I enlisted in the Army straight out of high school with uh, no plans to go into college. Uh, In the Army, I was a chemical warfare specialist, and one of my jobs was to lay out decontamination plans to maintain operational readiness in the event of war. Um, And water is the most important element during the decontamination process. So I was constantly trying to understand where fresh safe and reliable sources of water were. And since then, I've viewed the world through the lens of water, where it is, what it's doing, uh, how it works, and and what it means for people and the environment. Um, And so after my time in the Army, I enrolled um, in Forest Resources Management Program at WVU, uh, where I teach now, West Virginia University. And during that time, I became deeply connected to the state um, and became fascinated with how water connected the below ground with the atmosphere and the critical role that forests played in in regulating that process. Um, My focus on flooding in Appalachia uh, specifically um, is actually relatively recent. Following the devastating uh, West Virginia floods in 2016, uh, my postdoc at the time, Rodrigo Fernandez, and I uh, teamed up with two friends and colleagues who are social scientists, uh, Martina Coretta and Jamie Shin, um, and they were interviewing community members, first responders, and relief organizations Um, that responded during the floods. And together as hydrologists and and political ecologists and geographers, we started asking questions around what made these communities so vulnerable to the floods. And then that led to questions, what makes Appalachians disproportionately vulnerable flooding? Um, And that work has continued with uh, deeper questions about what's being done to move the needle on flood vulnerability, who is doing it and how it's being done, 
and what tools are available and how communities in West Virginia can actually participate in the planning process. So here we are. Yeah, that's great. And you didn't even mention that you're a kayaker. I happen to know that you are. So, (laughs) right. Isn't that right? (laughs) Uh, It is. It is. And uh, yeah, my love for water has co-evolved with all aspects of my life. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So I hope people understand, but there are many different factors that are at play when it comes to flooding and impacts of flooding. So heavy rainfall is typically, of course, one important contributing factor, but so is the landscape the soils, the slope of the land, and a variety of other things contribute to whether we have a flood and how bad a flood is. And also where people live, of course, really matters for the extent of the impacts. And so I just, can you take a few minutes and explain why the topography and the development patterns in Appalachia are so important to the extent of the flooding that occurs there and the impacts it costs of floods? Uh, Sure. Um, So uh, water is everywhere in West Virginia. Um, We're the 14th wettest state seen from uh, the perspective of precipitation. Um, We're the 10th smallest state in the country seen through area, but we have around 54,000 miles of waterways, of which 85% of those are headwater creeks and small rivers, um, giving us one of the highest concentrations of rivers in the U.S., Um, We're also a headwater state and provide water to about 10% of the U.S. population. So we have a lot of water. We're also a very uh, mountainous state. Uh, Of course, West Virginia is known as the the mountain state. Um, We have complex topography. Uh, Our valleys are V-shaped. Hill slopes are very steep and soils are shallow. And so water moves down slope and downstream very quickly. And given this complex topography, there's very little naturally flat lands uh, for people uh, to to live and and for infrastructure to be built. Um, So most people live near water. uh, And many of our roads and many of our communities were literally cut into the sides of mountains by coal mining and timber companies um, in order to access and extract natural resources, but also to house the employees that made that extraction possible. Um, but a lot of our buildings and infrastructure um, where there are floodplains are actually located on those floodplains. And of course, they're floodplains because of episodic flooding, that deposited material that made the land relatively flat. Um, West Virginia is predominantly a forested state. More than 80% of the state is covered by trees. But we do have a long history of extraction that has changed the relationship uh, between water and the forest and, and the earth. Disturbance from surface mining, oil and gas development, and timber harvesting, industrialization, and to a lesser extent urbanization have significantly altered uh, how much water moves, how quickly, um, as well as water quality uh, within the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Of course, another thing is extreme precipitation events. So many regions of the U.S. and elsewhere are experiencing a greater number of extreme precipitation events. And I believe that Appalachia is one of those regions. So I mentioned that eastern Kentucky flood last year in July of 2022. And some locations had nearly nine inches of rain in a six-hour period. And that flood you mentioned in 2016 in your home state of West Virginia, I believe that was similar. There were huge amounts of rainfall in a short period of time. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I think that's the case. So tell us a little bit about these extreme weather trends. And are they trends, actually? And, and what's going on with that? 
Sure. Uh, let me start uh, by referencing the 2016 flood. Um, yeah, about 25%, about a quarter of West Virginia's annual rainfall fell over the course of a couple of days um, during uh, the 2016, uh, what became the 2016 floods. And so if the question is, is heavy rainfall increasing, uh, then the answer is absolutely yes. Um, the question, are they trends? Um, it really depends on how you define and describe trends from a statistical perspective. Uh, finding trends in things like extreme rainfall and extreme events like flooding um, can be challenging. And just because a trend is not detected, it doesn't mean that it's not changing. And it certainly doesn't mean that people aren't being impacted by it. Um, a recent study by Climate Central um, showed that over the last three decades, heavy rainfall has indeed increased uh, throughout the country in the desert southwest and the Pacific Northwest, the southeast and, and the northeast. Um, they used hourly rainfall intensity, which was calculated by taking the total inches of annual rainfall divided by the total annual hours of rainfall. So not a statistical approach. Um, and again, um, it showed that heavy rainfall, uh, hourly rainfall has been increasing. And one of their study locations is actually here in West Virginia in Huntington, which is the state's uh, second largest city. Um, in Huntington, uh, since the 1970s, uh, heavy rainfall has increased by about 28%. And Huntington, not unexpectedly, uh, has been experiencing multiple floods uh, each year over the past few years. And this is consistent with the lived experience of residents throughout the state. Uh, if you ask the residents of Huntington uh, if rainfall is changing, they will emphatically say yes, and that heavier and more frequent rainfall is indeed why their city keeps flooding uh, each year. And so trends, uh, perhaps... Um, Lived experiences impact of, of more extreme and heavy rainfall? Absolutely. Yeah, well, I spoke with some people in eastern Kentucky last year, and the same thing. It was a, if you ask people, they'll tell you, absolutely, we see more of these really sort of big storms happening um, over short periods of time. That's interesting that that's sort of a, a national phenomenon. I didn't actually know that. So, I mean, why are these things, maybe this is obvious to people, but why are these big precipitation events particularly problematic in Appalachian communities? I think you touched on this a little bit with the development patterns, but can you just say a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. Well, as many of us have uh, know, uh, water flows downhill. So gravity is an important thing. And when you have uh, steep topographic gradients like we have here in West Virginia, um, dropping a lot of rain very quickly um, certainly poses problems. Um, but from a mechanistic perspective, when a lot of rain falls quickly um, onto steep slopes, it overwhelms any potential storage from the soils, and particularly the soil infiltration, but also the ability of infrastructure to uh, uh, attenuate that, that water. This in turn can uh, result in flash floods, which are floods that move very quickly on the order of minutes to hours. And in West Virginia and throughout the Appalachian region, flash floods are responsible for most of the loss of life and economic damage in the, in the region. Um, going back to the floods in eastern Kentucky last summer, um, there are harrowing stories of how quickly the water rose, where people looked out their doors, saw that the water was rising, turned to get their car keys, and literally as they were walking out the door, they were inundated by water. Um, that's how quickly 
um, these floods happen. Uh, another important point is with heavy rainfall um, and flash floods, uh, you don't need to live next to a stream or a river to be in harm's way. They literally can happen anywhere on the landscape where heavy rainfall exceeds uh, soil infiltration. And this is in fact what happened to me and my family in the summer of 2021 when my house flooded three times during that summer as a result of heavy rain. Um, and I lived towards the top of a hill um, pretty far away from the creek, yet we sustained pretty significant damage uh, in our house. And so heavy rainfall um, can generate floods no matter where you are. Wow. I knew you had told me that you flooded. I didn't know you were on the top of a hill and you still flooded. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're increasingly recognizing, I think, as a society that certain populations are more vulnerable when it comes to floods and other disasters. And in it, we had an earlier episode in this podcast series on coastal flooding and sea level rise in Virginia. And I just have to quote or paraphrase, actually, what our guest Skip Stiles said when I sort of asked this question about um, the cost of flooding or the impact and because it resonated with me. And he said, everybody gets wet. Rich people get wet. Poor people get wet. The difference is not everybody's equally able to kind of recover. And that's where you have a lot of inequities. So Many communities in Appalachia and West Virginia and other parts of Appalachia, you know, the counties have lower median household incomes in the country as a whole, some higher poverty rates. Um, we know, I know this because I looked it up, and eastern Kentucky counties last year that were hit by the flood had very low rates of flood insurance take up, and that makes recovery very difficult if you don't have flood insurance. So you've worked in communities across West Virginia, you live there. Just talk about like kind of the distribution of impacts that you see and how the recovery process kind of plays out. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yes. And, and before doing that, I just want to situate us in the in kind of the flood landscape here in West Virginia. Uh, between uh, those fateful floods in 2016 and March 22, uh, there were over 1,600 floods in, in West Virginia. Every county of our 55 counties experienced a, a flood. And a recent analysis by Chris Flavel uh, using the First Street Foundation data showed that more than half of West Virginia's fire and police stations, 46% of our roads, and 38% of our schools are at risk of flooding, uh, meaning that West Virginia is actually tied for the greatest proportion of properties in the U.S. that are vulnerable to, to flooding. And so the challenges are immense. And, and you know, continuing with that um, thread uh, that you discussed with uh, Skip Styles about sea level rise, flooding does not discriminate. Um, but one's ability to prepare, respond, recover, and cope is heavily influenced by social vulnerability. And so even without storms and floods, West Virginians have a big challenge around food, water, energy, health, and economic security. And the high social vulnerability means that West Virginians are already starting before disaster strikes with little capacity to absorb uh, the shocks um, from any kind of disaster. Um, plus, our communities are experiencing stresses of a post-coal economic transition on top of living in a state with low tax base and inadequate social protections and antiquated infrastructure. Um, so extreme rainfall and flooding are an immense stressor on top of many existing stressors. A big challenge is also the scale of destruction, which was uh, evident in the eastern Kentucky floods, where roads and bridges and landslides were completely wiped out. So response and recovery is challenged by that. Um, but in the 2016 floods here in West Virginia, um, volunteer organizations like Voluntary Organizations Active in Disasters, or VOAD, and faith-based groups uh, played a, a disproportionately large role in response and recovery. 
Um, my colleagues, Jamie and Martina, found that volunteer groups and faith-based groups, um, their presence actually deepens social capacity of the community, um, which is the ability of communities to act collectively in response to floods. Um, and this actually increased hope for community revitalization. So there is some positive amongst the, uh, you know, the, the despair. Uh, the title of their paper was actually, which was a direct quote from a community member, if it wasn't for the faith-based groups, we wouldn't be here today. And this really speaks to the importance of community cohesion and also diverse participation in planning, responding, and recovery, particularly in light of limited and insufficient services from the state uh, and federal agencies. Um, but you mentioned flood insurance, and this is a big problem. Um, a little over 1% of the 600,000 residential structures in West Virginia actually have flood insurance. And affordability is a big part, um, but so is education. Um, people don't necessarily know what flood insurance does, uh, who needs it, or how it works. What they know is that it increases financial burden. Plus, if I may, um, going back to these extreme rainfalls, floods can happen anywhere. And uh, the flood insurance mapping program uses uh, the 100-year floodplain as a basis for determining who should have flood insurance. And so if you don't live near a major river, um, you probably don't think of having flood insurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I ask you, did you have flood insurance when your house flooded three times? <laughs> no. No, uh, and, and, and we still yeah. don't. And we're thinking, you know, we're, we're going through the cost benefit analysis to figure out um, whether we need that or whether we invest in, in mitigation and adaptation on our, on our property. But, but if I may finish uh, the question with a, a point about the recovery process, um, recovery is a really, really slow, slow process. And it could take years for people to get back into their homes after a major flood if they can get back at, at all. Um, in 1985, um, West Virginia experienced what was called the Great Flood um, on the Cheat River and the Potomac River basins. Uh, and many communities impacted by the 85 flood still have not recovered. And people are actually still living in FEMA trailers almost 40 years afterwards. So it's slow, it's complicated, expensive, and very challenging. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just read that they're allowing Eastern Kentucky folks to, I think, purchase the FEMA trailers in Kentucky anyway. Um, yeah, so um, let's talk about some solutions. You started to talk a little bit about a few things, but um, let's start at the state level because the governor of West Virginia signed a new flood resiliency law just in March of this year. So can you tell us what that law does? Um, yes. Um, so let me say that this uh, replaces uh, the previous flood plan, which was um, published in 2004 and actually sat on the shelf until 2016. And while the first flood plan did a pretty good job of outlining objectives, it was short on what could actually be done about the flood problem here in West Virginia. And so Senate Bill 677, the new law signed by Governor Justice, um, created the state flood resiliency plan and addresses many of the limitations um, a couple of highlights are uh, it requires a state resiliency office, which was established following the 2016 floods, to submit a new flood resiliency plan for the state by uh, this time next year and every two years after that. Um, it also provides um, the SRO with the opportunity to employ staff needed to fulfill the responsibilities of protecting communities um, to extreme events. Um, and currently, the SRO um, only has three employees, uh, director, assistant director, and an administration specialist. 
Um, a big takeaway from the review of the 2004 plan was a lack of funding to support planning, mitigation, and adaptation. Um, and the new bill actually includes two trust funds to meet this need. Um, one is the West Virginia Flood Resiliency Trust Fund, and the other is the West Virginia Disaster Recovery Trust Fund. And both of these are designed to um, help in preparation, planning, uh, mitigation, as well as response and, and recovery. Yeah, that's great. That sounds like a step in the right direction. So what what's the next steps they need to do to sort of implement things? <laughs> yeah, and of course, this is always the, the, the big uh, question with the big answer. Um, the trust funds need to be funded and they need to be funded by the legislature. Um, flooding is episodic and so is support from elected representatives in state houses across the country. Um, so it needs to be funded and the activities need to be followed through. Um, and most importantly, um, underserved communities throughout West Virginia need to be included in the planning decision-making process. They are experts in their lived experiences, and they know the strengths and understand the weaknesses of their communities. And in a place like West Virginia, as with many rural places, it's going to be impossible to move the needle on vulnerability uh, without uh, including the communities that are most impacted by this. That's a very good point. Yeah. Well, let's go local then and talk about local solutions. What do you see, if anything, happening in communities in West Virginia or elsewhere um, when it comes to sort of hazard mitigation, building resilience? Have you seen some successful approaches or innovative ideas or what's going on at the local level? Yeah, it's 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 a monumental task. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, quite frankly, um, people are pretty overwhelmed by the challenge of what should be done. Um and to be honest, I'm not necessarily sure we know how to plan and mitigate for these types of floods. And to quote the director of the State Resiliency Office, Bob Martin, um, understanding the flood problem is like drinking from, from a fire hose. So there's a lot of uncertainty on what's going to work in terms of mitigation and adaptation. Traditional hard infrastructure like dams and levees are really expensive, but they're also impractical in the heavily dissected uh, landscape in West Virginia. Um, and bio programs um, can be pretty problematic as well. Um, West Virginians are deeply tied to their land and like many communities, marginalized communities don't necessarily have anywhere to go. Uh, there's conversations around elevating homes um, or relocating communities like what the uh, governor of Kentucky is uh, talking about, you know, rebuilding communities on, on abandoned uh, surface mines. And theoretically, you know, funding through the new flood resilience plan can help. Um, but of course, it needs to be uh, funded. Um, so there's there's lots of challenges on what to do. Um, there's been a lot of talk about nature-based solutions, um, which could be an effective way for mitigating flooding here in West Virginia. And the new flood resiliency law actually speaks to nature-based solutions, which I think is really promising. Um, but there is a huge question of what activities are actually effective, um, which are going to be practical, and which are going to be affordable. And to shed light on this, uh, students in my watershed management class at West Virginia University spent this past semester um, understanding um, how we go about uh, planning and, and adaptation through nature-based solutions. And they came up with some great ideas um, that could be used, but um, you know, um, at some point we need to have solid information before we can spend money on, on solving the problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. We need to have a further conversation about the nature-based solutions. Um, um, well, let me ask you, like, what do you think about sort of how much local communities need to sort of solve these problems on their own, which are very complex, as you're pointing out, 
versus the state versus federal guidance and money? Like, can you, do you have some observations about sort of the balance of who does what in this space? How do the feds, the state and the locals work together on these problems? Um, yeah, so um, it's important to acknowledge that every community is different. Um, every community has different needs, different capacities, different risks, different vulnerabilities. And so any potential solution um, is going to differ by community. Um, so there are no like cookie cutter solutions or cookie cutter resilience plans um, to, to be developed. And so a big challenge here and in many rural areas um, is this well-earned distrust and mistrust of experts and institutions. Um, experts of every kind tend to parachute into communities following a disaster just to tell the communities what happened, what's wrong with them, and what needs to, to be done to fix the problem. Um, and therefore, research and disaster planning um, can be a fairly extractive process. And so decision-making and planning, um, they tend to be top-down, and uh, many communities have been excluded from all sorts of decision-making that have huge implications for their lives and livelihoods. So to go to your question, I believe in West Virginia that it has to be ground up. It has to be grassroots. It has to start with the communities because they know what they need uh, best. Um, but communities themselves can't do it without funding. And so the state government and the federal government play a really important role in that. But the participation um, in the decision-making process has to be expanded to include communities that are most impacted by it. Yeah, super good point. So now let me ask you about your involvement or researchers or the university's involvement, because I know in addition to your lab that you run, you, you also are involved with the Center for Resilient Communities, which is a research center at WVU that works with communities on a range of issues, many of them justice related. And I think try to do both community engaged research and also sort of build collective action to solve problems. So tell us a little bit about that center and, you know, how that work is going and is this partnership helpful to communities? Um, yeah, so the, the Center for Resilient Communities um, is really uh, founded uh, by this understanding that building equitable and resilient communities in West Virginia requires a transformative approach uh, to learning, to knowledge production, uh, and, and action. Um, arguably, what has been being done uh, hasn't been working in so many different um, realms, whether it be food, access, water security, or, or flood preparation. And so the CRC is, is a laboratory and experimental space where we're learning to do this. Uh, undergraduate students and graduate students, faculty and community partners are learning about effective social action together through community engagement and participatory research. And so the ultimate goal of the CRC is to help create a new type of thinker, a problem solver, and a leader that can contribute to tackling these immense problems in West Virginia, but also abroad. And so how we do this is in small teams, we unpackage um, current tools and technology, data, and policy to understand how decisions are being made and who is making them and for whom. Um, and then we try to rebuild tools and uh, develop planning approaches uh, that are equitable and meaningful for the community organizations um, that are involved. And this is designed to enhance public discourse and, and decision making. And so this does rely heavily on participatory action research. Um, where new knowledge is generated uh, with community members and community partners um, at the table as experts in, in their lived experiences. And so this process of uh, co-production builds trust and confidence and expands the decision-making process. Um, so yes, I believe these types of partnerships are, are really helpful. 
And I'm, you know, I can expound a little bit more about some of our projects, but I'll, I'll let you go from there. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to be interesting to see how things go with you all. It's a great approach. Um, yeah, we're just about out of time. So uh, we have to close our podcast uh, now with a regular feature we have, Nico, that we call Top of the Stack, um, where we ask our guests to recommend a book or an article or a movie or a podcast or anything really to our listeners. So do you have something to share with us? What's on the top of your stack? Um, I do. And I, this is a really exciting uh, question. Um, my recommendation is actually a song. And it's a song that is titled You're It uh, by uh, Wookie Foot. Um, <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a really powerful song because it's a song about courage and hope. Uh, it tells the story of this child sitting next to the water's edge where floods divided people long ago. Um, and the elders didn't know how to swim, so communities remained stranded and isolated. Um, and this child asks herself, why am I so alone? And why are we all so alone? And then she jumps into the current and knocks off rocks and has feelings of drowning. And as she's being swept downstream, her, you know, she drifts out of sight of her homeland. And she starts being excited about these new landscapes that she sees. And when she reaches the new shore, people rush down and said, who is this child who's not afraid anymore? And these elders actually ask her to free them from all that enslaves them, to which she implies, I'm not a savior. And this is not some kind of miracle, uh, but I know where we need to begin. We just have to jump in. And so to me, this story really tells the story of what has happened here in West Virginia, but also where we need to go, you know, how to move forward. Uh, we need to all jump in. Um, but importantly, I didn't have a chance to speak to this earlier, but the importance of including youth in planning uh, for their own futures. And so this song is really inspirational and, and grounding for me through this uh, challenging work. Oh, that's great. I love that you recommended a song. <laughs> I don't think we have that happen too often. So that's great. Well, Nico, it's been really a pleasure having you on Resources Radio. I'm really glad we we're able to feature um, some of the flooding problems and solutions in Appalachia as part of our Climate Hits Home podcast series. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for your great work on this. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.